Hi everybody and welcome back to Reload Podcast. My name's Lee Maxwell and as usual I'm joined by... Connor McCann. And Nigel Lamont. We're back in lockdown again, so as you can probably hear, Nigel's on the phone joining us remotely. I sound like I'm down at Pringles tube, I'm sure, but sure, you have to do these things. Oh, I'm sure you're not too bad. I'm actually sitting in my car for soundproofing. <laughs> that's a bad job, wasn't it? And that's that's not for sound quality, to avoid the dog. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised you can't hear the dog anyway. Well, he was barking a couple of seconds ago, actually, so there you go. Uh, so this is episode number 25. Next Quarter of a century. We're nearly there. <laughs> uh, our next episode will be a full year, which is very strange to think about. It insert is. the trumpets there, Connor, insert the trumpets. Dur, 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 dur. <laughs> so we'll do our usual news and YouTube, uh, a few questions at the end. I have a topic which I'll you'll hear about shortly, um, but we'll start off as usual with what's new with us, Connor. I've sort of went on a bit of spending spree. I've been spending a wee bit of money on the Bora. You have. <laughs> as we talked about, and I sort of felt bad because... We've been sort of aiming towards building this garage and it's on hold, so it should be saving. And I looked and thought, I could kind of overhaul the bore a bit, do the bushes, all that carry on. Seen the Autodoc had a Black Friday special sale. I think it was about £160 of stuff. And I kept looking and looking. Then I started looking at timing chains and everything was cheap. And I felt, I went from feeling bad about spending £160 to spending £450. So but that, I mean... You'd practically be losing money if you hadn't, really. Exactly. If you don't spend the money, you're going to lose it. <laughs> um, other than that, I give Stefan a hand working at the track car, 172. That's probably a bit as automotive as I've got. I really wish I could work on some of our own stuff, but it's just not happening at the minute. No, I'm the same. And funny, the only real automotive news I have is buying stuff as well. Yeah, but hold on. What you bought was good. It's It's kind of snazzy. I bought some new Milwaukee tools again. Yeah. Black Friday prices, right. so now we're talking. Now we're talking. <laughs> what did you get? So I got the half inch, the bigger impact gun, the three eight, and a wee like ratchet, like a battery ratchet. Battery set. ratchet. Yeah, I think it was actually one of my recommendations in the last episode, wasn't it? Yeah. So uh, was that the Black Friday? That was Black Friday deal, was it? Black Friday Euro car parts. So pulled the trigger on it. I've been talking about it for so long. And it was the last one left, and I was like, oh, and I was, again, I was thinking about the garage and all this kind of stuff, and then I was like, well, technically it's for the garage, so just do it. And then I went online and registered them all on the Milwaukee website for the extended warranty and stuff, so, you know, again, practically losing money if you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> That's a man, Mads, or one well, man, I Mads. I stand by my Milwaukee, uh, have two years now, Father life's great, um, you can leave it sit for weeks, come back, and the battery hasn't diminished. You've always raved about them. Uh, fantastic. When you see other mechanics starting to use them over Snap-on, you sort of realize, you know, there's there's something more to them than people are talking about. Yeah, a lot of the Snap-on stuff has sort of fell by the wayside now. Um, I think the quality's not there from what it used to be. They can reave lifetime warranty all they want, but if the stuff breaks, yes, they'll replace it or fix it, but... Why not buy something that not break so often? But here, at the end of the day, you, you can walk into Halfords and it's still a lifetime warranty in there too, so it doesn't really mean very much. Know. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. What about yourself then? What's new with you? Yeah, a few things in the burner. Um, uh, as usual, the yard clear, I continue. I've started to clear another shed. Um, selling a few bits. Uh, tripped over an old car trailer that was a bit rotten. If you follow me on Facebook, you'll see advertising. Um, five minutes later, it was sold. <laughs> that was impressive. 
it uh, needs uh, it needs a bit of welding, but it has a basis of you know a few hundred pounds of steel and it'll make a good trailer. I I used it. I have I've had it over ten years now, and back it's more than ten years ago actually. Back then, I had nowhere to store it inside, so water always lay on it. And with it being steel and being outside, it just rotted the the flat decks of it, basically. Yeah, as they do. So uh, no, um, sold within five minutes. Um, then combination of things this week. Then the T4 van that I've had, I was sort of slowly getting through it, ready for MOT last year, and then COVID hit and all the rest of it, and. MOT at the moment is a pain in the arse because they failed everything. And I just thought to myself, right, I'm going to blow this out cheap. But before even that happened, the fellow was looking an engine out of one. I offered it to him. He hummed and had. And then I advertised it that night for um, money at five, well, was it five o'clock? And it was sold within five minutes. So it's going down south. So you're, you're quite the salesman, is what you're saying? Yeah, well, it's all part of my evil plan, basically. Um, so... I'm trying to gather funds at the minute, and uh, I'm hoping to start up something new in the new year. I don't want to say too much yet, but um, with the loss of a couple of job, part-time jobs, I'm not just going to sit and watch TV all the time. I can't sit, probably because of the amount of Monster Energy I drink, I suppose. But um, <laughs> have to burn that off somehow. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, oh, Mark Three and a Half Aberley Avant Guard will be up for sale soon with no MOT. Keep your eye on the social media. <laughs> <laughs> it's the wrong time of year for one of those, isn't it? Yeah. Ah, oh, well. I tell you what, cheap, it's, cheap. it's a good car, though. Here. Avant-Garde, the best Mark 3.5 spec. It's just got everything. It has cruise control. I, I still can't get over the fact that it's air conditioning and a convertible. Oh, I, they just threw everything at it. I think it's more to do with the fact, is it 95? I think it's a run-out sort of stuff, you know. Ah, uh, yeah, they're trying to blow it out. They've just got this warehouse full of parts and just went right through everything at that there and add five grand onto the price tag. Do you remember you and I took it down into the Wicklow Mountains one time for a show down with Sarah and those guys? Yeah, it was, it was a lovely romantic trip. I it really was. enjoyed it. We looked like two raving homosexuals. <laughs> looked like? <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's a great car. That's, it was. I was impressed by that day. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I think I'll try and sell it in the next week or so. In the back burner, um, a new project car, not project, um, I bought a car there a few weeks ago, I think I mentioned in the last episode. Yeah, you kind of alluded to it. What it, I don't think you said what it was though, did you? Yeah, it's Mark 6 GTI, so there you go, cuts out of the bag. Very nice. <laughs> really nice GTI. Um, so, well, I might as well say it, but uh, I bought it with the chains that uh, broke on it, so I knew it was a hard engine to get. I had considered... Um, well, first off, I consulted with my best mechanic in the world, Andy Maxwell. He works in this stuff day in, day out, and he had a look at the head and all, and he said it was rebuildable. But the mechanics that had been working on it previously had lost every single bolt. Of course. Uh, they had wrecked the turbo, pulling the head off. So we started to do the sums. The bolts were going to cost hundreds and hundreds. The turbo was going to be 300 pounds conditioned. But the engine was salvageable and still is salvageable. But... I started to look around to see if there was a good engine for sale, and big shout out to Paul Glennon who sourced me one Very nice. in Donegal. So I was off on Monday, so I went on a wee road trip up to Bumcrana. Fantastic! Would I, I be right in saying that those TSIs have a habit of snapping the chains? Yeah, the chains, the chains. Um, well, for example, this car that I bought the engine out of, it was the 2000, or the the engine I went to get was out of a 2010 Golf. 
in 2014 when I was under warranty, the chains went. Oh, lovely. Um, it had, it had 28,000 miles and the chains went. Oh God, here you were raging Volks- at that, wouldn't you? So Volkswagen replaced the full engine under warranty. And, uh, so I have a warranty engine now. Lovely. Um, the fellow was a gentleman. I, I don't know if I should say this or not, but the car was basically, he went out for the day and his son took the car out for a drive. And his teenage son took the car out for a drive while he was away and wrecked the car. And the fellow owns a sort of parcel scrapyard, so rather than put it through the insurance, because he couldn't, wouldn't get anything of the insurance anyway, um, he just broke the car. But oh, he kept the engine just in the, uh, in a shed in the meantime. Uh-huh. And yeah. Did he break the sun? Uh, no, it was, it was actually very chill. I, I don't know how he had the self control, but, uh, yeah, so I got it home. It had a gearbox and subframe, just a full front end, basically. So I got that all pulled apart. And in the next few weeks, I'll hopefully get that engine in. And so. have it a bit of fun in it? Well, I don't know. I don't know. Um, might be put towards the business, sort of thing. Well, true. Yeah. Uh, a worthy cause. Yes. So, uh, yeah, I stopped in Bunkrana and had ice cream when it was teeming down. So, apparently, that's what you have to do when you go to Bunkrana. You have to get ice cream. Well, I was going to say, I was in Donegal on Monday. <laughs> Were you? Should have given me a shout. We could have met for ice cream. <laughs> well, I got stopped both ways by the guards. Did you? I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I think they all know Libra now. She covers the country. <laughs> yeah. There's Lee. Hi, Lee. We have her own past. <laughs> so, yeah, keep him busy. Keep him busy. Just before we move on as well, I want to give a shout out to our listener, Gav525. Gav was on the reload run with us, you might remember, in the yeah. silver Porsche. Did you see what happened to him this week? He put up the picture of the car at the scrapyard, I think it was there yesterday. Unbelievable, that crash. Yeah, he hasn't released a whole lot of the details about it, but he had messaged, or had messaged when I seen the photos and. He had a bit of a bad accident, the Range Rover, and he said, he put the photos up and he said, honestly, without the Range Rover, if he had been anything else, he'd been dead by now. Absolutely. Yeah, it's scary. It was the front right corner, just looked like it drove him to a stone wall. That's it, yeah. And as he put up as well, it just goes to show, especially this time of year, everybody's running around, tired, thinking about Christmas, presents, money. Things can happen in a split second. You don't even know what's going to happen. So he walked away from it, thankfully, without, I think he had a few scratches and that was about it, but... Others yeah. aren't so lucky, so watch yourselves, folks, yeah. on the roads. Uh, okay, we'll move on to our regular news feature then. Who's up first? Nigel, do you want to kick us off with the news? I suppose because I'm an edition freak, we might as well talk about the new uh, Mark 8 Club Sport, stroke edition, 30, or edition 45. Um, Volkswagen announced the details this week. They didn't give a date of release, but going by chronologically of the editions, it should be 2022, I would have thought, no? Yeah, that's usually... I'm trying to think when... Well, what, what year's your edition? Yeah, anniversary was 03, Mark 5 was 07, 35 was 12, Club Sport was 17, so it'll be 2022. So this must be long down the pipeline. I know the, G, the GTI's out and the R's coming in the next few months, I think the R's coming. You think they're sort of building a bit of hype about it? Yeah, so starting at 37K, 296 brake, the old EA triple eight engine um, stands them well, so they'll probably just tweak that a wee bit. Bigger brakes, chassis tweaks, different bumpers, a few graphics here and there, a uh, bit of aero stuff. The Mark 7 S was limited to 400, but Volkswagen say they don't plan to limit the numbers. That's an so, old one. It sort of dilutes the special but, factor. But, but that, that was the Club Sport S. That was the one with the back seats. But they said the Club Sport will be limited. I think that. There's more to do with the article I wrote. We'll probably bring an S out too, I reckon. Ah, yeah. 
it's all very vague details. All the modern journalists are all saying the same sort of lines at the moment. So I think it's just very vague details. It's more than likely going to be standard edition material, though, isn't it? You know, upgraded this, upgraded that, wee small tweaks yeah. here and there. The enthusiast dream. <laughs> like yourself there with the Mark V. Yeah, was it? I was looking at the Mark IV anniversary again this week, so must resist. <laughs> those those are a car that have aged so well. Oh, I just think the the details on them are just brilliant. I so hated I hated Mark IVs until I drove the one that Lee bought from you, and then got my own, and it's just like, oh, these are cool. I always liked Mark IVs; they were always one of my favorites. And obviously, Mark IV R thirty two, you know me. <laughs> Growing up around when they released them, I just found them very bland to begin with, and you had to really get a special one to make it work. And there's the old story or the old thing of you know they brought out the GTI and it was under par, and you had to spend the money to make it fast, you know. Yeah, unlock um, the potential from it. Yeah, yeah, and that's VW answered that in the Mark V when they brought out a faster car, basically more refined or more tunable. So they did. Um, but. but uh, not as pretty, so, you know. Ooh, <laughs> oh, right the right the fields. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Club Sports coming out soon. Get excited if you've got the do. Sticking with Volkswagen Audi, then, there's a bit of sad news. Yeah, um, well, it's a combination of two stories to sort of talk about, but um, I'll start with the first part of it, and it's basically an announcement this week, alongside the other bigger announcement that, that you're going to talk about, and it's Audi's announcement they're quitting Formula E to return to LMD um, racing. So that's the the long endurance stuff. Uh, Le Mans, Daytona, uh, they're, they're basically... They left LMD back in 2016 during Dieselgate, so that was a money thing, obviously. Um, with the Project E with the... Or Formula E with the, the rival Dieselgate, but that was always in the pipeline. But their announcement basically... Uh, by 2022, they'll be back in FAA World Endurance Championships. That's Le Mans and other things like that. And then they're back in the Sports Car Championship in 2023. Also in the back of that, they plan to enter the Dakar in a fully electric Audi in 2022. Yeah, that's definitely going to test the electrics to the, the maximum there. So in the background then, being part of the group, Porsche have sort of announced, uh, or not announced, but there's rumours circulating that Porsche are going to make a return to WC also. So on that week, what was our announcement then? Car, coincidentally, even bigger again. Volkswagen Motorsport are no more. I suppose you don't even really need to be into Volkswagens to know who Volkswagen Motorsport are. The motorsport division of the brand go on approximately fifty years. The heritage they have is incredible. They've worked on so so many projects, and now it is being binned. Even more recently, after Dieselgate, the move towards a lot of the electric stuff. Um, the last year they had actually planned to be. They pull out of all internal combustion projects, and now they've been even right down to the IDR. The IDR is the one we talked about with Sean Maynard had done the Pikes Peak Challenge and the Nurburg records, and just decimated everything. Um, even Goodwood as well. It's 169 staff work for them. They've been moved on to the Volkswagen production line, and the official line is that they're going to bring their product knowledge to the the common car, so to speak. So. Currently, they have the Polo R5 rally car and the TCR challenge cars. And anything that's existing in those at the minute, they're still going to support it for like tech support and support and for parts. But after that, they're not producing any more of them. I was, I was thinking about this and then I was watching Jamie R's video. We didn't see it, no? No, we didn't actually. 
it was a very good video now. VW, or Jamie knows VW and VW, he's worked with VW in the past. And it's interesting, he's a 15 minute video there on it. He emphasized that it's VW AG that's quitting, but in recent years, VW Motorsport has been more localized anyway. Like you have Port- Motorsport South Africa, Motorsport Asia, and America. <clears throat> I think there'll be more focus on that. Um, just sort of on, reading on between the lines. More on local motorsport by yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I was just sitting thinking about the 169 people. That's that's just you know 169 people that are complete experts in the field of decades of motorsport. And they're saying they're going into the production line. Yeah, so they're going to go into the development side of the the road cars. Would they not be better utilised developing chassis and stuff for the electric programme, no? It probably will. I imagine they will trickle down to that. But can you imagine coming from the Volkswagen Motorsport side of things and sitting beside the the common pleb and looking around going, what am I doing in here? Like, it it would feel like such a downgrade. I suppose it's better than losing your job, but... I was flying around the world with the WRC team for the last 10 years. Now I'm sitting beside Hans here, bolting <laughs> steering wheels on the markets. Yeah, it's crazy. Think of some of the cars over the years. You've got the VW Rally, the Dakar stuff, Pikes Peak Mark II, the WRC program over the years, the GTC cars. I, I honestly think they've made this announcement, but I think they will have an electric motorsport division soon. It could well happen. Like they have three, like the polo you're speaking about there, they have three constructors titles for WRC, um, the numerous Dakar wing wins in the Touareg, the IDR, as I say, absolutely destroyed Pikes Peak and Goodwood records and the electric record at the Nürburgring. Like it's yeah. a lot of heritage there. Maybe, maybe on the back of that is another topic then I could maybe bring up. The ID3R in the pipeline. Right. Maybe that's what these guys are going to move on to. Reports are that VW are working on an R version of the 83. Presently, the 83 is a single motor, 201 brake horsepower um, car. There, there is reports that by 2024 there will, there will be an ID3R, um, so that'll be an increased output motor, basically. So VW Spain, when they heard this, I think they sort of went right. Let's put a Mark 8 GTI up against an 83. And they didn't do it over a quarter mile, but they done over an eighth mile, and the ID3 just beat the GTI. Yeah, a, a standard ID3, so you can imagine what an R model would do. Yeah, but the, over a quarter mile, I think the GTI would have, would kill it, like, you know. Yeah, it'll get the legs on it and pull on. Um, so that's what's in the pipeline, folks. That's the future for us. Just buzz going down the road. Not help pedestrians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I think Lee had mentioned the, was it the Hyundai Kona? electric rally car yeah and you said Nigel about like you know guys standing on the side of the track waiting for it coming you don't hear it next thing it knocks you down are you feeling the side of your head before you hear it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're in the ambulance although I read Was a I thing thought- a couple of weeks ago there about it must have been just after I talked about that on the podcast that a load of the Konas in Ireland have all been recalled because they're going on fire well, so sounds about right you not hear it coming until it sets you on fire you'll feel the heat lovely <laughs> That that would be handy during the winter to keep you warm. Oh yeah, this morning there it's like what minus two out this morning. So yeah, I wonder would... did the, I wonder did the employee uh, Vauxhall Zafira technicians to build that Kona? Oh yeah, they they had the heated dashes in them, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to wait for it to warm up. No, 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 no. And then I think the other big bit of news is um, well, it was actually last weekend this happened, but I don't think we can get away without talking about it. Was Roman Grosjean's crash in uh, Formula One. 
Yeah, wow. the Haas driver. Yeah, that was crazy. I'm sure yeah, but- anyone listening to this, like I, as I've said before, not a big F1 fan. Most of what I know comes from having watched that series on um, Netflix. What was it called? Drive to Survive. Drive to Survive. Drive to Survive, and like it's just mental. Like he hit that Armaco barrier at 140 mile an hour, and kind of like punched between the two strings, like the top and bottom string of it. Which was Did I, you see the computer generated simulation? I didn't know. The I think it was a couple of days ago somebody put a computer generated simulation and basically it showed the halo pushing up the barrier. Without the halo he'd been decapitated. Well, that was one thing I actually had noted there that Grosjean was a big one against the halo when it first came in. So for anyone yeah. listening that doesn't know what it is, it's essentially a ring with like a vertical brace along the front that's twelve kilos of titanium. I think it holds twelve like an impact rating of like twelve ton. Yeah. Um and I think a lot of the diehards were like, no, this is open cockpit, you know, you're supposed to be not exposed and all. But honestly, without that, that man would have been cut in half. Um, yeah. They reckon that he hit that, the force that he hit it with and stopped was about a 53G impact. I know, Jeeper. yeah, like from aerospace testing, the forward tests are a 16G because the FAA say that you won't survive anymore. They're unlikely to survive any more than 16G, so they don't test beyond that. And this was a 53G crash, and he, well, they say he walked away from it. He jumped out of the car and... Hopped out over the barrier? Yeah, like he was seriously fit for getting out over that. Did you see the interview on Sky Sports F1 with uh, Martin Brundle? No, I didn't. he done an interview. It was very interesting to listen to, like, but... He was trapped in there for 28 seconds. I think he was knocked out instantly. And then he talked about waking it up. He went to move his head, and his head banged against something, and he thought he was upside down. Uh-huh. And then he he seen this orange, and he thought, oh, it must be it must be sunset or it must be sunset. It's very orange. And then he realized it was fire. He talked about how he was sort of a bit relaxed about it, and just sort of came to accept that death was coming. That's was, crazy. <laughs> like yeah. Then the thoughts of Nicky Lauda came into his head, you know, getting burned with that and all the yeah. rest of it. And then he went on to say, look, I can't die like this. Uh, he started to think about his kids, which most parents would when they're in a situation like that. And he went to get get out then. His foot was stuck, so he had to reach down and unstick his foot. And just as he came out then, he didn't see the, I think it was Axel, the, the doctor, not the safety steward, that pulled him out from the barrier. Yeah, I did. I actually thought he burnt his hands and feet I was listening to something there during the week. I think it was Revival Motor Podcast, actually, and they were saying that the the suits had just been updated. Yeah, that's the thing. The the suits had been updated this year to like a thicker material. But the the but gloves the hadn't. Boot, the, the boots and the gloves hadn't been, so that's why they burned. Yeah, so that's most of his injuries is stemming from like the burns anyway, is the hand. One thing he had said as well was that the the visors, like the tear-off strips, had charred across the visors, so getting out, he was essentially blind. So you can imagine like the, the chaos of that having just happened, fire all around you, and you can't see anything. It, like, what those yeah. guys going through in that is mental. Like, to get out of that at all is incredible. I actually thought he had burnt his eyebrows, and then I looked back at pictures from a couple of weeks ago, and his eyebrows are like that. <laughs> That's just his eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy French. Very lucky man. Yeah, um, definitely. Scary, scary crash. So I'm sure the uh, the F1 Motorsports Association guys will have their hands full for the next wee while investigating that and what actually happened. Yeah, yeah. That'll be fun. Lee, have you got some news for us there? The only thing I have is that uh, earlier on in the week, the Isle of Man government confirmed that the 2021 Isle of Man TT is officially cancelled. 
it's not even postponed. It's not. They've just said we're just not going to have it in twenty twenty one. We'll wait for twenty twenty two. That's usually summertime, isn't it? Yeah, like May, May time. Third, yeah, third. It's basically a week after Northwest, isn't it? So do you think maybe that's the case of they do want to organise something and then at the last minute it'll be pulled out from underneath them kind of thing? Well, I think at the minute, I mean, like we know from Dubshed, obviously this is on a much, much larger scale. The stuff, the preparation that goes into it in advance, so like it would be starting now, There's th- there would be things already happening and they can't do anything at the minute, I guess. That's probably part of it too. And as you say, getting closer to the time, they can't guarantee whether they will be able to go ahead, so there's no point in trying, wasting everybody's time and money, I suppose. That's a serious blow for the economy, Isla Man. Like, that's a big part of their... Oh, it's a big earner yeah, for absolutely. locals, especially. But it is what it is. I'm sure everybody's suffering, so... It says, uh, yeah. we remain hopeful that the classic TT and Manx, Manx Grand Prix can take place later in the year, but... The way things are going at the minute, who knows? If that is the case, they might find a lot more people going to them as opposed to the, the yeah. normal TT, yeah. Well, obviously the, the Isle of Man people know something that we don't if they're looking that far ahead. You anything else for us there, Nigel? I have just a small story, and it was Porsche announcing they are developing a new fi- a new fuel to save the combustion engine. Enter dramatic music, you know. Dun, um, dun, it's, called, <laughs> it's called an e-fuel. It's a joint venture with Siemens. At, Siemens? Uh, is that how you fill the tank is it (laughs) (laughs) you you might be there a while (laughs) yeah so Siemens Energy uh, 20 million pound investment they're basically saying combustion engine isn't dead yet but um, they'll be building the world's first industrial synthetic fuel factory in Chile it's going to be a carbon neutral fuel so here here begins a science lesson with Nigel so here's how it works (laughs) you got the doctor's coat on Broke this down. So wind turbine generation splits water into hydrogen and oxygen via electrolysis. So it's the reverse, reverse of a hydrogen car. The hydrogen then is combined with CO2 to produce methanol. The methanol is then converted into gasoline. So there you go. That's how it's done. Oh. Um, they, they plan then to, by 2022, 34,000 gallons, which isn't a terrible lot in the grand scale of things. 2024, 14.1 million gallons. And 2026, 145 million gallons. So you got to ask why. And I think basically some Porsche came out and basically talked about the reliance on fossil fuel being imported into Europe, and that's going to be an ongoing concern. So it's going to be part of their sort of second track to, of the car program, while the e-car uh, progresses. So uh, it's basically admission that e-cars aren't there yet, and their motorsport must be fueled and it's to save to save the money too I think by investing 20 million to just fuel it's definitely a strange move I'm surprised like if Porsche are over that you know why is no one else over it that sort of thing yeah well Porsche seems to be always on the cutting edge of things so it'll be interesting to see how this pans out but I just thought it was a bit strange and I think there's something more to it but yeah we'll keep an eye on that for sure I mean we know if we know, if we the fucking idiots on the ground know that the e-cars aren't there, they don't have the range, they don't have the this, they don't have the that, that we've talked about at length in the past. Also the fact that the infrastructure for actually charging all these cars ne- isn't necessarily there, certainly in all areas. So there's going to have to be something. And yeah. I'm all for, as you know, I'm not embracing the electric revolution yet and maybe i'll get there someday but and i think i've figured out what it is it's the fuel it's give me fuel give me fire it's that that's what i like if it's not exploding dinosaurs i'm not really there 
You want you want the liquid. <laughs> that's what I want. <laughs> That's a, that's a great slogan for a car company. If it's not exploding dinosaurs, <laughs> we don't want to know. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> My last one, then, just a small bit as well to finish up. The UK, certainly, anyone else around the world, Americans, might have heard of the, the Haynes Manual. And it's essentially the, the Bible for the DIY automotive enthusiast. I think in the, the American version, the Bentley Manual. And the founder, John Haynes, I think his name is, he died last year. The company was sold off. They were bought by, by a French company. Yeah, I heard about that on, I think it was Overcrest podcast, they talked about it. And they are now her stop in printing. So they're continuing to print previous editions, but there have been no more new Haynes manuals, as you know it, and they're moving to online. The reason being they're saying that they can up the rate, for the coverage from about 60% to 90% of cars. But the only thing for that for me is, I don't know about you guys, lying under a car with the Haynes manual beside you and a torch on it, you know, it's kind of a thing where... Yeah. Plus, can you imagine, like, pulling off a coolant line and it absolutely soaks your laptop? Yeah, yeah, that too. That's going to be fun. Not only that, they're just iconic. You know, it's just that nostalgic thing of... Like, my dad always had hands manuals for every car, and anytime I got a new car or anything, the first thing I did was you get a hands manual, usually secondhand off somebody, but, you know, we have a whole library of them up in the workshop, and it's a pity. It's another one of those nostalgic things that's going away I suppose I think it's part of the digital revolution now like I don't know about you but if I'm trying to do a job in a car and I don't know how to do it um, I either phone somebody that does or you google it or YouTube it yeah forums was so a big like, one for that too you know like back in late 90s when I was learning to drive like Haynes was the way you learnt about something you know I didn't have very many mechanical friends back then so Whereas now, somebody that's maybe just learned to drive, you can look it up on YouTube, you can Google it, you know, maybe not all the time, but sometimes there'll be answers there. Yeah. So I'll that's that's bound, that's bound to have a an effect on sales of manuals. I wonder, I wonder will that be more towards the professional, you know, as in like, like workshop type manuals as opposed to the, your enthusiast? Well, Haynes Pro has definitely become much more of a thing. Oh, is there? It used there, to be like Autodata and I Autodata the was a thing, the yeah. Big, but Haynes Pro was becoming much bigger than Autodata, even. I don't know, but hmm. certainly I've heard more about it in the last few years than. Oh, I didn't know that. Now, maybe that's where that's online, come from. Online teaching's where it's at. It seems to be, but it doesn't give you the little symbol that says like how many spanners of difficulty it is. <laughs> <laughs> Those were always a lie. They were always a lie. I remember. I can't even remember what it was I was trying to do on the Passat and it was like one spanner difficulty and I was like, after about three hours, I was like, you're fucking lying. It's not one <laughs> spanner hard. Anything above three spanners, I was straight around the mechanics. I was going, I'm not even going to try that. We're not going for that. <laughs> Back then, I didn't even have the proper tools, so I just sort of went, why bother? We still don't have the proper tools. I couldn't afford the tools. I couldn't afford the tools, never mind going to the mechanic. No, no. Oh dear, that does for the news then. We'll move on to YouTube. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, mine's a very quick one. It's a combination of two channels. One of them's, um, I think it was, was it Chris Harris's channel or Top Gear? I don't, or, I don't know if it was Chris Harris's channel. Basically, it was him going out to um, Porsche. And the other video was uh, Henry Catchpole from Carfax and YouTube channel. And they go out to... Yeah, Porsche, about the release of the new GT3 that's incoming, and they they are shown around basically at Aladdin's Cave of all the GT cars over the years, from the 996 upwards, and 
if you're in the courses, you'll get your jollies while watching these half hour videos. Um, you can see, like, anyone that knows Chris Harris will know that he's just a complete fanboy of the GT cars from Porsche. And he's like a toy, he's like a little kid in a toy shop. He just doesn't know where to look first. Yeah, he basically meets up with Andreas Preuniger, who is the GT boss, the development boss of Porsche. And, uh, some of the cars around there, like his RS 4.0s, 911Rs, and GT3 Tourings among all the GT3 RSs and stuff like that. So, yeah, I really, like they walk around, go through the cars and the development of them. And it's great hearing the, the boss of the GT division chatting about how cars were developed. And yeah, it's, it's a good watch. It always fascinates me what the manufacturers have tucked away in the, in the dungeons. Yeah, I think they had a, one of the cars was basically a car that was never released, I think, or something. There's something about it. I can't even remember. Yeah, that's the sort of thing interests me. I like to get a nosy around. Yeah. But it was interesting to see the first GT3 that came out, the 996, the fella that runs the GT version, he came in after they produced it. <laughs> he didn't so much as say, that was shit, but the Generation <laughs> 2 of it was much better All because right. I built it. <laughs> a humble man is what you're saying. Uh, no, I, I, but he basically saying, yeah, it was all right, but there was a lot of flaws in what they'd done in it. You we, know? we made it better. Yeah, basically. But uh, no, it was good, a, a good watch. Definitely. Just the one for us this week, and it's not even just me. This is actually Leah and I together. I know, and I never contribute on this section. And I will admit that I was wrong, which, think well of that, because it's rare that I will admit that. <laughs> we kind of got sucked into the, the Hoonigan universe. And we, I don't yep. even know how we started watching it, but... You said something, I can't remember, yeah, we were talking about something and you had searched for something and then it came up and you were like, oh, let's, because you do the screencasting thing on the TV, because that's my thing about videos is I don't watch them on my phone, like I can't be bothered and like looking at a wee small screen and blah, 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 but when they're on TV, I'm okay with it, like. So if you've been living under a rock like I have, Hoonigan is Ken Block and a group of friends and just doing some of the most amazing car shit. They are currently doing one at the minute called Hoonicorn versus the World, which is Ken's custom Mustang, 1,400 horsepower. What is it, about £3,000? All-wheel drive. Yeah, the thing's an absolute animal. twin-turbo killing machine. Yeah, so it was built for the Gymkhana stuff. It wasn't built to drag race, and they thought, let's drag race against anything and everything. And they put it up against trophy trucks, um... IROS brought their 1100 horsepower RS3 saloon. Have you seen it, Nigel? The red one? The blue one. Oh, the blue one? No, I just seen the red one, I think it was racing. Um, what else Dunk was Master. Dunk Master came with his, uh, I think it's a 70s Cutlass with 1500 horsepower. It's. And like 30 inch rims or something? 06 turbo engine, I think. Yeah, well. Did like, they have a McLaren. They raced the McLaren smoked it as well, didn't they? McLaren Senna. Yeah, McLaren Senna yeah. absolutely annihilated it. Like this thing oh, is. Oh, it's made it look stupid. Fucking animal. Me diesel truck, I'm, I'm, your man. Here. After yes. the video was going around this week, I'm surprised it didn't go on fire. Oh, yeah, the, the McLaren fires. <laughs> um, Chuckles Garage, then oh, yeah. they brought the... Old oh, Smokey? Yeah, Old Smokey. It's a F-150 with a Cummins diesel. Done the diesel Pikes Peak record. I, I don't want to spoil it for anybody that hasn't seen it, but watch it. it. There's five episodes at the minute of it, and it is fascinating. And they give you the stats of each car, and you're kind of like, yeah, that'll not do this, or that'll not do that, and... Sometimes it's predictable, sometimes it's really not. And the banter between the guys is absolutely fantastic. The thing we talked about before we started recording was the absolute savagery of the unicorn. 
uh, launching. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, and the shifts in it too. Like he's just throwing yeah. gears at it. The gearbox is immense. And it's just bang, 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 bang. They said, and it was it Lee that the the four wheel drive system was developed for the Dakar rallies. Yeah, I think so. And now it's into this lightweight race car. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just it's so overbuilt. It's just absolutely ridiculous. It's twin turbo, twin turbo V eight. No intercoolers, run on methanol, so it keeps cool. It's like I, it kind of you don't even know how to describe it. That's the worst of it. It's just absolutely nuts. And I think the reason I avoided Hoonigan was I had this misconception in my head that it was seventeen year olds driving Fiesta ST lines, telling people that they're Fiesta yeah, I see, STs. That's my. That's kind of why I wasn't into it. But actually, when I watched those, I was like, actually, this is cool. Yeah, these guys are good. Like, So I think it's kind of their followers more put me off Hoonigan than anything else, but I was definitely wrong. Uh, okay, so that'll wrap us up for news for this week. Um, we'll move on to our main topic, hosted by me. I haven't really, well, I've told you guys what it's about, but that's about it. So hopefully you'll enjoy it as well. Hayley, do you want to take us away? So as we talked about earlier, as we alluded to a couple of times earlier, the Dakar Rally is a well-known motorsport event. I don't think there's anyone in the world of cars or many people in the world in general that haven't heard of it. And one that you're quite fond of. I am. So I thought, especially with the recent news of the demise of the motorsport division and Volkswagen, that now was the time to do a bit of a dive into it. So, Yep. Very fitting time. I've got a little bit of the history, some notable events, and then... A little bit of a Volkswagen sidebar, which we'll get to in a minute. So to start us off, Dakar runs just like any other rally, but just further and on more extreme terrain. The stages include some road sections, but the emphasis is firmly on escaping the tarmac and punishing the vehicles that are taking part. The story begins back in 1977, when Thierry Sabine got lost on his motorbike in the Libyan desert during another rally. While he was stranded, he realised that the environment would be a super awesome venue for a whole rally if he made it out alive. Saved from the sand, half dead, he returned to France, still with this idea in his head, and he promised himself he would share this fascination with as many people as possible. He proceeded to come up with a route starting in Europe, continuing to Algiers, and crossing the Agadez region before eventually finishing at Dakar. The founder coined a motto for his inspiration, a challenge for those who go, a dream for those who stay behind. Courtesy of his strong convictions and that slight madness that comes with all great ideas, the plan quickly became a reality. It's described on the official Dakar website as follows. A unique event sparked by the spirit of adventure, open to all riders and carrying a message of friendship between all men that has never failed to challenge, surprise and excite. Sabine's gamble took shape on the 26th of December 1978 as 182 vehicles turned up for a 10,000 kilometre journey into the unknown, destination Dakar. Among the 74 trailblazers who survived the race and made it to the finish line, Cyril Nouveau, at the handlebars of a Yamaha 500 XT motorcycle, became the rally's first winner. The five competitive groups in the Dakar are the motorcycles, quads, cars class, which ranges from buggies to small SUVs, UTVs, which are utility terrain vehicles, an example would be a Gator, Gator or dune buggies, that kind of thing. They're like a small four-wheel drive kind of thing. It used to be called a side-by-side. I think the Americans refer to them as a side-by-side. And the fifth class is the trucks class. Many. Well, sorry, 
Sorry. What, what does the side by side mean in the side by side? What does it refer to? There's two seats side by side in them essentially, so it's a bit like a like a doom buggy off road cart with two seats, one beside each other, like you would have in a a two seater car. But the oh, UTV so class can be between two and six seats. Ah, oh, right, yeah. But side by side is just the general term for them. You imagine Gethin taking the the John Deere Gators out over the Sahara. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's trying to pimp one out for the John Deere Christmas thing. I've been keeping an eye on that. It's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> There's going to be 25-inch spinners on it here with Santa driving in the middle. Many manufacturers use the Rally's harsh environment as a testing ground and an opportunity to show off their vehicle's durability. Although, in fact, most of the vehicles are heavily modified or purpose-built. They're not really a, a demonstration of what your average road car will be like. The vehicles all race at the same time, and the competitors navigate using paper road books across miles of rugged and desolate terrain, and it obviously carries a real risk of collision, injury, disorientation, dehydration, mechanical failure. Local terrorists. Local terrorists. One of the things that I did in preparation for research in this topic was I rewatched Charlie Borman's Race to Dakar. So we've talked oh, nice. in the past about Long Way Round and Long Way Down. This was one that he did by himself without Ewan um, about taking on the rally on a motorbike back in 2006. And you can see from that film, if you haven't seen it, um, it really shows some of those risks about the things all racing at the same time and just the absolute madness of getting stuck in sand and the harsh... And the toll it takes on your body. Absolutely, yeah. So this is a quote from Charlie Borman from an interview that he did with the Belfast Telegraph, of all things, um, a couple of years ago. He says, I did the Dakar rally back in 2006, which is one of the most dangerous off-road races in the world, and I broke both my hands. I remember being petrified. You hear stories about the horror crashes of the Dakar rally and about people getting lost in the desert, and they're all true. Every 20 minutes, you were just about to crash. Bikes, cars and trucks all race at the same time. You'd be doing 100 kilometres an hour on this dirt road on your bike and suddenly a truck would come past you at 130 and leave you in the dust. (laughs) So one of the things that I saw from the film that I didn't know about before was the bikes have what they call a sentinel system on them, which they didn't used to have, but it's a more modern addition, um, which gives you a flashing light on your bike and, and makes like an audible noise to let you know if there's a car or a truck coming up behind you. And you can see in some of the videos, like if they hadn't had that, those cars, they just appear over a sand dune and they would knock you down. Talk about feeling insignificant. <laughs> yeah. And basically it is, get out of the road. Yeah, if you're on a bike, you're the, the smallest thing out there. Stages can range from 300 to 900 kilometres and the drivers and riders are in the seat for more than 12 hours a day with just a few enforced 15 minute fuel stops. Extreme temperatures in the desert stages, as well as altitude in the more recent South American stages, all combined with the incredibly physical nature means fatigue is frequent. When the teams arrive back in the bivouac each night, they are faced with hours of road book marking and prepping their food and kit for the following day. Those with support teams can get a helping hand with this, but competitors in the original by motel class have to do it all themselves. That's part of the nature of that class is you've no support crew it's all, It's you on the bike and, and that's you. So jumping back in time a little bit to the earlier years, the event grew rapidly in popularity with 216 vehicles taking the start in 1980 and 291 in 1981. 
the early days of the rally were defined by the privateer spirit of early racers defying the desert with limited resources. In 1982, there were 382 racers, which is more than double the amount from the first year, 1979. Included in that number was the then British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher's 29-year-old son, Mark, who sparked an international scandal when he and his teammates in their Peugeot 504 went missing in the Sahara Desert. <laughs> That's a strange bit of information there. <laughs> it was actually, it's on the most recent series of The Crown. All right. Yeah, they talk about it. <laughs> After six days and a search involving four countries, planes and helicopters, they were found by the Algerian military. Needless to say, Margaret Thatcher was mortified and keen to avoid a public bash- backlash over the use of taxpayers' money in the search and rescue mission, a subject of great interest to MPs and journalists at the time. Yeah, I would imagine so. <laughs> uh, Cyril Nouveau won the event for a third time that year as well. At the behest of the 1983 car class winner, Jackie X, don't know if anybody recognises his name. Porsche legend. The Porsche legend. Uh, he convinced Porsche to enter the Dakar in 1984 and the t- with the total number of entries now at 427. Porsche won the event on their first attempt, courtesy of René Metke, who had previously won in 1981, while Hicks himself finished sixth. One of the saddest moments in the Dakar history was in 1986, which later became known as the Black Year. Uh, On the 14th of January, a helicopter crash killed the rally's founder, Sabine, and four others. Uh, And his father, Gilbert, Gilbert, took over the organisation of the rally after that. I take it they were using the helicopter to watch the race, you know, sort of move between the different stages. I assume so, yeah. Yeah. The 1987 rally marked the start of an era of increased official factory participation in the car category and a domination for a number of years by the French in the form of Citroën and Peugeot. Peugeot won the event that year with former World Rally champion Ari Vatanen. The 1988 event reached its highest number of entrants to date with 603 starters. Perhaps the most bizarre of Dakar disasters and one that cost Vatanen the 1988 title was when his Works Peugeot 205 T16 mysteriously disappeared overnight, apparently stolen from behind a sand dune. That's a strange one. <laughs> Much of that year's... Like, mo- that's, Sorry. That's, that's like going to Victoria Square and coming back. And I swear I left it over. <laughs> <laughs> Which sand dune did I park it behind? <laughs> Much of that year's media focus had been on the 87 Dakar winner and 81 World Rally Champion Vatnan, who only 18 months before had been in hospital on life support following a huge crash at an event in Argentina. But with victory in sight, the car disappeared into thin air. The vehicles were parked overnight at a local football field and local residents were allowed to wander freely amongst them. The drivers had had their dinner before retiring to the caravan park and woke to find their car missing, reportedly having been seen driving out of the compound during the night. That's the kind of thing you would imagine you would hear driving out. Would you not think so, Nigel? It would be a bit loud now. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not going to tiptoe out of there. The Peugeot team principal claimed to have been contacted with a ransom demand of $90,000 for its return. But miraculously, the car reappeared minutes before the start of the next day stage, allowing the crew to continue towards what would have been Vatnan's second consecutive win. However, the organisers decided that Due to the crew not being at the start line 30 minutes before their scheduled departure time, they had broken the rules and had to withdraw. That's a bit rough. Uh, it handed a victory to the their Peugeot teammate, so Peugeot still won, but 
not Ari Vatnan. Yeah. Ever since. And, but that's, what, that's, what, that's what you find sometimes with regulations. Like, there's no common sense, you know. No, that regulation's there for a reason, but how many people get their car kidnapped? Yeah. There's so, like, there something in the F1 last week where there was a fine, or there was some sort of regulation put in place, and some team had a really bad time. You're sitting there going, here, easy on you, dickheads, you know. Ah, uh, yeah. I use some sort of common sense in it. Yeah. Somebody got deducted or fined because they didn't put, they didn't disconnect the steering wheel from one of the cars. You meant that when you bring it into Park Fermi, you meant to have the wheel off or something like that, and somebody forgot to, and they got either a point deduction or a big fine or something. You're just sitting there going, what? Lord forbid. <laughs> yeah. Well, see what you think of this next But Ever since, the reason for the car's disappearance has been hotly debated. That the locals could have really started the complicated car and snuck it out unnoticed kind of beggared belief and rumours circulated that it was a staged theft to allow the team extra time to fix a possible engine problem. <laughs> Alright. <laughs> so sneaky friends. This, this goes back to our cheating in motorsport episode then, yeah. <laughs> um, another sad Dakar incident occurred in 1996 when a Citroen support truck hit a landmine in the desert killing the driver and injuring the co-drivers. Uh, the incident occurred on the fifth stage, close to the route in southern Morocco. The mine was left behind from the 1976-89 war in the Western Sahara. You really wouldn't expect that. Like, that's no. not... You imagine going into it? In the mid-90s, Peugeot and Citroën's dominance began to wane and marked the beginning of the Japanese invasion, most notably Mitsubishi, whose Pajeros proved to be a force to be reckoned with. Can I just butt in and say those Pajero Evos are sexual? They're, They're so pretty cool. cool. Have you been watching uh, Driftworks lately? No? I think they have one, don't they? Yeah, the your fella, oh, I forget his name, that works next door to them, uh, Dino, Dino Torque or whatever you call him, um, he bought a Pajero for a full restoration and he's putting an LS into it um, with a Whipple charger. Yeah, that's going to um, be fun. So he's basically got the 3.5 VTAC engine and threw it in the bin and just went, America! <laughs> <laughs> I like so, that. So, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see that because he's, he's just a nutty professor when it comes to that stuff. So, yeah, I, I, I remember the Evolution came out. It was actually a car dealer um, not so far from me. He actually had one there about 10 years ago, a white one. Um, very, very limited production. Yeah, I think they're climbing on numbers now as well, price-wise. We're lucky, lucky enough in this Ireland that during the great Jap import days, the more of them came in here, basically, you know. Yeah, that's so, it. There's probably more here than there is in Japan. I think they suffered from the usual Jap stuff of rot. You know, that's the only thing. Yeah, they do like to rot. And they don't like our weather. No. no. Uh, Mitsubishi actually ended up becoming the most successful manufacturer in the history of the Dakar, with 12 wins between 1985 and 2007. The 97 rally ran exclusively in Africa for the first time, with the route running from Dakar to Agadez, Niger and back to Dakar. Citroen's withdrawal due to a real change paved the way for Mitsubishi to take their fourth victory, and Japan's Kenjiro Shinazuka became the first non-European to win the event. Stefan Peter Ansel equaled Niveau's record of five motorcycle category wins in 97, before going one better in 98, when the return excuse me, when the event returned to its traditional Paris to Dakar route. Uh, in 98, Dakar veteran Jean-Pierre Fontenay posted another win for Mitsubishi in the car class. 
2001 was the final time that the rally used the familiar Paris-Dakar route and was notable for Mitsubishi's Yuta Kleinschmidt as she became the first ever woman to win the rally. A record 688 competitors started the race in 2005. Alongside Mitsubishi and Nissan, Volkswagen now boasted a full factory effort, having debuted their race Touareg the previous year, and more on that later on. The 2006 event moved the start line to Lisbon. Nissan had pulled out, having failed to provide effective opposition to Mitsubishi, who took their sixth consecutive victory. A further victory followed for Mitsubishi in 2007. After the increasingly competitive Volkswagens retired with mechanical problems, Stefan Peter Hansel, yes, that's the motorbike guy from earlier on, was now driving in the cars class, and he triumphed in what would be the final African event of the Dakar. The first chapter of Dakar history came to an abrupt end in 2008 when a heightened terrorist threat in West Africa forced that year's event to be cancelled out of fears for the competitor's safety. With just one day to go before the start of the 30th anniversary edition, the French government pressured the organisers to put a stop to the event. More than 500 cars, trucks, bikes and quads were already waiting at the start line and the cancellation was unprecedented in an international event of that size. But with direct threats having been made against the rally by Al-Qaeda and such a vast, unprotectable route, obviously it was the sensible decision and it would have been pretty foolish to go ahead. Yeah, you're not going to mess around there. No. Omar bin Laden, yes, son of Osama, took the opportunity to promote his horse race for peace as an, as an equine alternative, saying, I heard the rally was stopped because of Al-Qaeda. I don't think they're going to stop me. Yeah, you might have the inside line on that one. <laughs> However, this is only a temporary uh, I blip. Gonna, I was going to say something about Jerry Adams competing or something. <laughs> <laughs> you maybe back them up. However, this is only a temporary blip in the history of the Dakar and the race resumed in South America the following year. I'm just going to take this opportunity now when we've started talking about the Volkswagens to go off on a brief Volkswagen-related sidebar. And then I'll come back to the history of the rally I don't think in a minute or two. Nigel or I will argue with that. No, I wouldn't have thought so. So one of the, the things that kind of prompted me to start looking into this was, as regular listeners will know, one of my favourite cars when it comes up on a question of, you know, unlimited money, what cars would you buy and what's your favourite rally cars and all this thing. Mine is the Dakar Touaregs because they are so cool. The Dakar Touareg, that must have, the seals that must have generated, must have been insane, that program. Yeah, it's bound to have. Yeah, I think that was around the, the launch of the Touaregs as well, wasn't it? You know, they weren't out that long at the time. Yeah. So here we go. A history of the, the race Touareg. In the early 2000s, a team of engineers and specialist sub- subcontractors constructed the race Touareg. Less than seven months passed from design start to the initial test run of the first prototype and it competed at the Dakar Rally in 2004. Although the Volkswagen Race Touareg carries the name of the model family, it is a motorsport vehicle built for desert rallies and bears only minimal resemblance to an actual road-going Touareg. Yeah, I wouldn't even say it's a shell of a Touareg over a space frame because it's all roof-chopped and... It's totally different looking. Yeah, I think it's the headlights. That's Yeah, that's a bit it. <laughs> the badge. <laughs> All the pickup points for sub-assemblies, bodywork and suspension components are integrated in the space frame, which weighs only a third of a ton and functions, as it were, as a roll cage. 
High tensile aircraft still guarantees an ultimate tensile strength of up to 700 newton meters per square millimeter. Importance was simultaneously placed on achieving the lowest possible centre of gravity. The four wheels of the race Tuareg are supported by double wishbone units on the front and rear axles, each with twin spring damper elements. The regulations limited the spring travel to 250mm in spite of the high ground clearance, so it requires a relatively high positioning of the lower control arm. A 2.5 litre five-cylinder TDI engine was new for 2005, which Volkswagen developed specifically for the Dakar. The inline engine delivers 500 plus newton metres of torque through a six-speed gearbox and three differentials to the permanent four-wheel drive. The regulations also prohibited any form of electronic controls, so all three diffs have viscous locking capabilities. The appearance of the race Tuareg was not only distinctive and striking, as we mentioned, but also functional. Thanks to the short overhangs, the pronounced entry angles to gradients don't present a problem, and aerodynamics enjoyed highest priority. The entire bodywork is carbon fibre and weighs only about 50 kilograms. That's seriously impressive. Which contributes only 2.8 to the total unladen weight. 2.8%. Beg your pardon. Yeah, and that's including nothing as doors, remember? Yeah. For improved agility and optimum weight distribution, all the important assemblies of the Tuareg are concentrated between the axles. As a result, an equal weight distribution over the front and rear axles was achieved, and the extremely low-mounted fuel tank also helps with the centre of gravity. It has two equally long prop shafts to the front and rear axles, four identical drive shafts, eight standardised spring damper units, and common suspension components that are diagonally interchangeable, so i.e. the front left can be replaced by the rear right, so it saves money, maintenance, amount of spare parts you have to carry. Yeah, that's some good engineering there. I like that. In 2006, the second generation race Tuareg, aka the RT2, debuted with a number of improvements. The height of the driver and co-driver's seat was retained, but the crest line was lowered. So the centre of gravity is reduced further and the visibility is improved. So on narrow paths or approaching the crest of sand dunes, the drivers could judge obstacles much more easily. The occupants also gain more space and the longer wheelbase gives more stable handling at high speed. Nevertheless, the vehicle's total length still shrank by about 200mm, so the overhangs appear much shorter. Despite enlarging every cooling air inlet by 50% when compared to the previous model, the CFD calculations, that is computational fluid dynamics, indicate that the car's drag coefficient is actually better than the previous model. The rally prototype received its final definitive round of fine-tuning at the Volkswagen wind tunnel in Wolfsburg. Power unit was also reworked in many areas by the engine development department. Mechanical modifications included a revised dry sump lubrication and the thermodynamic setup of the turbo system and its regulation were also new. They started the 2007 Dakar with a new four-valve TDI engine. The 2.5-litre five-cylinder inline diesel engine in the RT2 was equipped with a newly developed cylinder head which increased the power output to 285 horsepower and the maximum torque to over 600 newton meters. <laughs> in 2009, Volkswagen was the first manufacturer to win the new Dakar in Argentina and Chile after the move from Africa, and it also marked the first victory of a diesel-powered car in the history of the Dakar rally. Ah, oh, that's impressive. Wonder if that anything to do with Hitler when he escaped to Argentina? <laughs> <laughs> Is that definitely a rabbit hole? 
it, it's it's interesting now to be sitting, you know, how many years it is later, thinking about how big the push in diesel was not so long ago. Yeah, like, and that was a big thing. The Touareg was. Do you remember oh, the, huh? a lot of their? Had they did they tow a plane with it as part of like their? Something yeah, that like that, was yeah. the. That was the V10. Yeah, the, the towed a jumbo jet. They, yeah, that's everybody was pushed towards that, and then obviously it was uh, to quote Gladiator, they sold a queer giraffe, <laughs> and uh, we're back in petrols again. Um, the oh. accomplishment was topped in 2010 when Volkswagen triumphed with a one-two-three podium win. Uh, Carlos Sainz won the Desert Classic for the first time in front of teammates Nasser Al Atia and Mark Miller. And another aspect went down in history that year after a long and captivating duel between Sainz and Al Atia. The winner and runner-up were separated by just two minutes and twelve seconds after nine thousand kilometers which marked the closest Dakar finish of all time. The third version, the RT3, was freshly developed for the 2011 rally. The new Dakar rally obviously crosses the mountain ranges of the Andes in South America and in places rises to almost 5,000 metres above sea level. So the height factor plays a crucial part in the battle for victory and Volkswagen left nothing to chance in respect to this. The altitude application, which had been developed for the 09 and 10 rallies, received a software update for 2011, which kept performance losses in the thinner air as low as possible. Yeah, that's Pop- popcorn remap. <laughs> Eighty pound the back car park. Yeah, that's that's one thing about the turbo engines as well is when you're starting to get into thinner air, it's still cramming the same amount of air in, you know, to get what it needs as yeah. opposed to NA cars. Uh, the radiators behind the cockpit were also enlarged and received an optimal supply of fresh air thanks to a double air inlet in the roof. The fuel, brake and damper cooling systems were also perfected and the new airflow routing reduced the accumulation of air underneath the carbon skin. Especially on hot desert stretches driven at relatively low speeds but where the amount of air sorry, where the amount of air supplied is also low but the required engine power is high nonetheless led to a notable uptake in performance. Less pressure losses in the entire intercooling system enabled a higher power output and the inline diesel engine with a two-stage charger now delivered 310 horsepower while a new gear ratio improved drivability. To assure optimum preparation for the extreme demands of the Dakar, Volkswagen thoroughly tested all the vehicle components of the the Touareg before deployment. Only components that had previously completed full Dakar distances or more under test conditions without any problems received the green light. Not counting the engine, the Touareg consisted of about 4,500 single components. Every one of them had to be carefully tested and inspected prior to installation or being loaded as a spare part. Supply parts and those produced in-house were non-destructively examined for defects and samples were taken from each batch, subjected to even tougher destructive tests. That kind of gives you an insight into where the, the cost of motorsport comes from for manufacturers, like it's nuts. Yeah. R&D. And if this doesn't sum up German efficiency, I don't know what does. Every single assembly component is electronically catalogued and its mileage recorded. On location, barcode scanners provide a constant overview of the mobile parts store inventory in the service trucks, plus information about scheduled exchange intervals. All this serves a single purpose, to meet the unexpected of the Dakar with optimum preparation. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not. But here, that's why they do well. 
Uh, Volkswagen went on to win the 2011 Dakar with another 1-2-3 podium sweep. And with that victory, Volkswagen Motorsport said goodbye to Dakar and switched their focus to the World Rally Championship with Carlos Sainz as one of the developing experts for the all-new VW Polo R WRC. However, they did reveal a road-going concept version of the race Touareg at the Qatar car sh- the Qatar Motor Show later that year, which Connor and I actually saw at Worthersea when we were there. Yeah, at 2011, I think that was. Yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing it, but like, that thing is absolutely nuts. Oh my God, how I wish <laughs> they had made it, because I really want one. Funny that year, usually they put a big display on of concept cars and they actually had very little on i think the mark 6 convertible was yeah. one of the big pushes which didn't really interest me but seeing that thing was nuts like oh, it was class it was white with like gold wheels and i think i i should have photos of it somewhere i could post up as well yeah i really want one anyway back to the history of the dakar rally after that volkswagen rabbit hole in 2012 the x-raid team came to the fore now using minis Peter Ansel had joined the team in 2010 after Mitsubishi's departure, but had been unable to challenge the Volkswagen drivers. Following Volkswagen's withdrawal, he was able to secure his fourth win in the car category and his tenth in total, his main opposition coming from within his own team. Peugeot returned for the 2015 event with an all-new diesel-powered two-wheel drive contender, but failed to make an impact as the X-Raid minis just dominated. Peugeot did, however, see success in 2016 with Peter Hansel behind the wheel, racking up his sixth win in the car category and again in 2017 and 2018 until Peugeot decided to officially leave the competition. Stefan Peter Hansel is one of the is the most successful competitor in the history of Dakar, winning the rally a record 13 times, six on a motorbike and seven in the car class for Mitsubishi, Mini and Peugeot. That's a real man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Equally as unpredictable as the rally itself, the weather can often cause chaos for competitors. Take the 2017 event, for example, during which incredibly heavy rain in Bolivia turned stage six into just a quagmire, forcing the cancellation of the stage. Yeah, you kind of imagine that that's going to be dry and dusty and that's rain's going to be the least of your worries, but I suppose when it does rain, it just goes chaos. Yeah. Stages 5 and 8 were also shortened significantly and the route was revised for stage 7. And then a landslide as a result of the rain swept through Argentina and forced cancellation of the ninth stage as well. However, as the Brits are used to a bit of rain... In the motorcycle standings, KTM's Sam Sunderland triumphed, becoming the first British rider to win the event. And in 2019, Toyota had their first manufacturer's win. It was generally accepted that the jeopardy in South America was somewhat lower than in the Sahara. Tarmac roads are never that far away, and it allowed the support crews to keep pace better with the racers, and it became a bit more of a sprint event. And the technology obviously developed with that in mind. Last year, 2020, the rally moved continents once again, this time to Saudi Arabia, where it came under heavy criticism because of the situation of human rights and the position of women in Saudi Arabia. Indeed, money won. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, it's not the first time that the organisers have come under fire over the years. When the race was held in Africa, it was subject to criticism from several sources, generally focusing on the impact of the inhabitants of the countries through which it passed, 
Residents along the race's course said that they saw limited benefits from the race, that race participants spent little money on goods and services, and that they produced substantial amounts of dust and were blamed for hitting and killing livestock, in addition to occasionally injuring or killing people. After the 1988 race, when three African residents were killed in collisions with vehicles involved in the race, PANA, a Dakar-based news agency, wrote that the deaths seemed insignificant for the race organisers. The Vatican City newspaper called the race a vulgar display of power and wealth in places where men continue to die from hunger and thirst. And during a 2002 protest at the start line in France, a Green Party statement described the race as colonialism that needs to be eradicated. The environmental impact of the race is another area of criticism and also in 2014 the rally was blamed for damage done to archaeological sites in Chile. As with all motorsports, it faces condemnation for safety, especially when deaths, unfortunately, but you might say inevitably, occur. Yeah, it's like all motorsports, it does have an inherent risk there, as we've seen with Formula One recently. Uh, The 43rd edition of the Dakar is going to be held in Saudi Arabia again this coming January, 3rd to the 15th. A route of 7,646 kilometres starting and finishing in Jeddah will continue the exploration of the Saudi desert begun last year. 2021 course features all new special stages and strives to reduce the length and amount of fast sections while emphasising driving technique and crossing and navigation skills when a, a marathon stage will test the equipment management and endurance qualities of the competitors immediately after the rest day. After some serious crashes and the unfortunate death of two motorcycle riders last year, uh, the rally organisers are keen to make 2021 one of the safest runnings of the race. Roadbooks are now going to be handed to competitors just before the start of the stage, as opposed to the night before. The hope being that that will cause them to slow down slightly as they take on unfamiliar terrain, having not had the chance to prepare overnight. Yeah, sort of planning where they can go hard at it. Um, there's also some motorcycle, excuse me, motorcycle-specific changes for 2021, all of which are aimed at slowing the riders down and making them take more care of themselves and their bikes. For 2021, all motorcycle riders will be required to wear airbag vests, and uh, audible warnings will be used to notify competitors that they are approaching a dangerous section. In these designated slow zones, the bikes will be limited to 90 kilometers per hour. They're also placing a limit on the number of tyres available, hopefully making them a bit more mindful of the tyres they have fitted and a bit slower. And bikes that need a second piston change, something that is quite common usually. Yeah, because you're drawing in so much dust in the air. Yeah, um, will be eligible for a time penalty. Up till now, it was only the entire engine being changed that would force a penalty. And repairs to bikes during fuel stops are also prohibited. The only thing that they'll be allowed to do is change over their roadbook. Uh, They can do repairs in the timed sections, but the clock will be running. Participation is expected to be at its lowest for a number of years, obviously with the ongoing pandemic and associated global economic situation. Organisers say they have worked a little on the price offer, but at the official presentation of the rally on the 25th of November, only 321 vehicles were confirmed on the entry list. And in addition, 26 vehicles have entered for the new Dakar Classic category, which is open to uh, cars and trucks built prior to 2000. Obviously, the number of participants still subject to changes. There's usually changes around the start. So in sum, 
It's a race that will cost you $75,000 to enter, may leave you stranded in the desert, and has resulted in the deaths over the years of 78 people, including 29 competitors over its 40-year history. Yet the Dakar Rally retains a special allure in the world of motor racing. It's one of the world's greatest endurance events that tests body and mind. Most racers enter the Dakar to get a true test of who they are and to experience the battle between driver, machine and terrain. The sense of camaraderie amongst the competitors, especially, I don't think it's unfair to say, amongst the bikers who have a seriously tough time of it, is a real show of sportsmanship and competitors often stop to help an injured or broken down fellow racer in the middle of nowhere. For those of us back at home who'll never experience any of that, it's still an incredible spectacle. Jaw-dropping footage of machines racing across these amazing landscapes and scenery and the engineering, obviously like me who fell in love with the Tuareg, as well as the excitement and stories that come from motorsport in general, means it will always maintain its legendary status. Thanks very much, Lee. One thing I always uh, really take from that is that the names cropping up there are all old and new rally drivers. Yeah. You know, yeah. Carlos Sainz, even right back to Ari Vatnin there. Yeah. Like, it's obviously something that draws a lot of people in. And Sebastian Loeb has competed over the years uh, as yeah. well. And, and it's one of those things, it's probably one of the more difficult race series in the world. And I suppose those guys see that as a challenge, you know, to, to try and take it on. Yeah. One thing that as well that really impresses me is the trucks, the size of those things. And like, they're going through like dunes and stuff and there's just big rooster tails of sand yeah. everywhere. And it's like, <laughs> those things are mental. There's a few behind the scenes things like uh, Charlie Boardman's thing and all the rest of it. And it's not until you watch some of them, you realize it's a race like no other. Like, you can talk about endurance races, like Le Mans, stuff like that. Like, Le Mans, I think it's three drivers, or one dri- three drivers splintered with the 24 hours. That's right, yeah, they swapped them out. You know, the Dakar's five-day event, is it? Oh, it it, it varies. Depends. It can be anything from 12 uh, to 17 or something. Oh, there you go. Um, but, you know, the, the, the mental capacity for that, combined with the skill and the your actual vehicle and the mechanics and the engineering of that there, it's just insane. And then, as Lee says, some of the classes require you to not only drive but do your own prep work as well. So you're, yeah. you're and all your own mechanicals and like the particularly the motorcyclists, the balls they have to do that is just insane. Yeah, because you are the smallest thing out there. You know, the next thing up from you is like your side by sides and utility vehicles and right up to the trucks. Like it would be very, very easy to get crushed under something. Yeah, it's definitely a, a ball. I, I found to address one of the stats there that was seventy nine people killed. Seventy eight, yeah. I think two-thirds of them weren't even competitors. No, it's Jesus. spectators along the way, um, support guys, the organizer and the people who were killed in the helicopter crash. So yeah. the, the band group B over the head of the likes of that? I mean, obviously, as we said, with motorsport, I think there's that inherent risk. And you, t- you take that on board when, when you agree to go and compete, you know that that's a possibility. I don't, and I guess that's kind of the accepted risk, but I don't think that there's as much acceptance of spectators and you know bystanders being at risk yeah whether they're themselves or not there is that kind of thing of yeah you don't want spectators getting killed and as we said before if you choose to go and stand at the side of a track when there's fast motor vehicles of any description coming past you do kind of take that risk upon yourself but i think it's slightly different out there where you're racing across people's homes and farmlands and you know yeah even right down to the the mention of the animals and stuff getting harmed you know yeah 
it, they're not signing up for that essentially. No, but yeah, interesting. I very much enjoyed looking into that. I must say. Uh, just before we go on to our listeners' questions, then I'd like to take a second to talk about our sponsor, Reload Global. Reload Global are an enthusiast-owned company providing you with not only premium automotive apparel, but accessories such as garage banners, posters, stickers, and air fresheners. We spoke about them in the last episode about Christmas gift ideas, and anything from their site would make a great Christmas gift both to you or others. Get your orders in time. Check them out at reload.global. Okay, so we'll move on to our questions section. Now, we've had absolutely loads of questions this time around, so thanks very much, everybody who sent them in. We're only going to do a few of them on this episode, and I think we'll hold the rest over for the next time, just because I think we're starting to run out of time a little bit. Yeah, we have a bit of an idea for the next episode, which should sort of tie in with the questions, which should be good. Yeah, hopefully so. Anyway, kick us off there, Connor, please. Yeah, the first one is Fogel underscore O'Reilly 26, and... It's a technology one for the young ones. He says, Forza or Gran Turismo? The last games console I played was a PlayStation 1. No, too. I had Need for Speed Underground on my PS2. You know, Need for so Speed Girl in? I'm, I'm kind of out of that question, I'm afraid. What about you, Nigel? You a gamer? Uh, I'd run the Sega. <laughs> <laughs> Mario Kart. Um, Forza or Gran Turismo? Gran Turismo... I had a PlayStation 1 back in the day when it first came out, like, and PlayStation 2, but I never really got into it, into it. Um, my son has Forza there, a couple of variations of it. It's a very good game, Forza, actually, so I'd probably swing towards Forza. I don't play a Forza simply because I literally cannot physically play an Xbox. I can't get my head around the controller, but I would prefer to play a Forza simply for what you can do in it compared to Grand yeah, Turismo. There's some yeah. of the stuff in it's incredible, but from what I actually own, one of my favourite racing games is Mario Kart. It's just so good. Oh, Nintendo will know what they're at. They really do. <laughs> a few beers, Mario Kart, and just pass the night away. Yep. Jerry Lav, 89, he says, now it's near the end of the year, are you guys going to do some sort of motoring awards? How did Jerry yeah. come up with this and we didn't? <laughs> yeah. To be honest, we've though, we did. We dropped the ball there. What would you give an award to, though, this year? There's been nothing. I know, nothing has really happened. I think in awards to listeners or listen or motoring in general or on that topic when people were posting up their Spotify and how long they had listened for us and the screenshots that were coming out during the week there, I think there's actually a few listeners that would need awards for having listened to us for so long. <laughs> I know, God love them. <laughs> I, I think that's one we could maybe dream up for the next episode, if you know what I mean. Yeah, see what we could pull up. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Dog Pizza, he says, "What color should I paint my rotors?" And rotors are American for brake discs. I go black or silver. Why would you paint your discs? Tidy them up. The rust. <laughs> Why would you not? These Why are the questions. Tell him he needs to buy those snazzy mirror-plated ones that we talked about a couple episodes ago. Then you don't need to worry about it. So he's sorted them. Yeah, he can see himself. Just I don't. I can't remember how much they were. I think a lot. But you know, if you think of all the times you'd have to repaint them, you, you know, save yourself on the cost of paint. Buy the snazzy chrome discs. <laughs> I usually try and stick for with that the, bling bling for shizzle. That's it. Dunkmaster will have them on. <laughs> I actually try and buy the padded ones because they're zinc plated, so they don't actually rust around like the centers or anything. But if I was painting them, it'd be black or silver. What would you do, Nigel? Funny you should say about that rusting thing. I put MTEC discs on the Edition Thirty, uh-huh. and the hubs or the center of the MTECs are terrible for rusting. It's, they're absolutely awful. I find anything that's not coated is going to be the same. They're a disaster yeah. forwardly. I mean, I wouldn't go so far as painting my discs, but anything around the brakes, like 
drums and calibers and things like that, it, it's always black hammerite. That's all I've ever done. Aye, well, black or silver would be my go-to for them, like. Next one, yeah, then. Silver. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Silver. silver. Sorry, silver, yep, yep. Nice and bright. Uh, next one, then, Oak Green with Envy. Derek, he says, last episode talked about Christmas presents. I'd advise shares and Tata Steel for Connor's Mark III. It's a low blow. It is. No, we would advise shares in Sebden Steel. It's because they're our friends. Yes. But I would advise shares in medical supplies for Derek the next time I see him. <laughs> like comments like that. <laughs> Oh dear. Um, big con- talk, big talk. Big talk, aye. I said, it's all right when he's 60 mile away, I can say whatever I want. <laughs> <laughs> sure, um, you know where you can find him. He's always in a boat. He's never doing anything else. Aye, out there fishing. Next one then, Connor Old. He says, car modification, pet peeves. And this is one I'm sure we all have a lot of. Yep. Uh, list here, basically, cut springs, oversized window strips, window factors, pop and bang maps, or... The equivalent of that in diesels, the overfuel strokes smoke or popcorn maps and diesels. And then really gash stickers in the back windows that say stupid stuff. Yeah, that's definitely a thing exclusive to Northern Ireland, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, all the agri spec felter fucking bullshit, grass men and whatnot. She's no goal in her, but she's some boss. Yeah, I guess. Works that was, to that effect. Yeah, I seen that at Dubshed one day and I near was sick. <laughs> yeah. Mine um, is wind deflectors. I fucking hate wind deflectors with a burning passion wind deflectors are good when they're used as a, like a functional item but to have them on as a decorative thing really i don't when get the only inverted commas modification that you've done to your car is a set of wheels and some wind deflectors Bro. there's a certain dimension of the car community in this country um their go-to mods are the cheapest coilovers rep wheels big massive sun strip and a stupid Sticker in the back window and window flag. That's their priority list. It is tick the box, yeah. My other one is... Um, Inbred by numbers. <laughs> you know, on the like Jap-spec cars, although obviously Volkswagens and stuff have them now, even though they're not really functional. You know the little rubber band clips for your bonnet? They're like a quick thing or like they the pop bumpers. off rather than the clips. When they're installed, they're supposed to be twisted. That's yeah. the whole point because they're supposed to be under tension. But people who just stick them on and don't have the twist in the rubber, and you're like, it's clearly not even functional, you fucking idiot. Yeah, you can tell the whole bumper still bolted on as per factory, but yeah. they've just drilled a hole in the wing in the bumper with this. Because I think these little clips look cool. The rubber bands. Well, they don't. Um, my one definitely. That, 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 that sort of reminds me of the, you know, the toe straps they put on cars. Oh, yeah. Cable tied to the bumper. Well, that just says to me. <laughs> My car breaks down all the time and this shit. <laughs> yeah, that, that's me all over. Um, I'll get you one for the Mark III. <laughs> you one for the Bora. Um, mine then, 3D number plates. Those like acrylic layup number plates with the, the yeah. cut out letters stuck on. Just really, I don't know what it is. They look cheap. And they kind of like cast a shadow with the lights above them or below them. You know, the number plate lights. It just is not for me at all. They're 4D, though. Aye. They're in the fourth dimension. I have it. Here, fourth <laughs> dimension doesn't exist. Go fuck yourselves. <laughs> Not according to Rick and Morty, it doesn't. Well, true. Maybe they're all Rick and Morty fans, as you say. That's, uh, no, not for me. No thanks. Next one, then. Adam8642. He says, is the Mark Five? sorry, is the Mark IV Golf GTI with the two-liter engine able to be tuned a little? I think a little is the emphasis there. Yeah, one of the most stupid releases, I think, was that engine. 
in the G- with the GTI badge on. Yeah. I don't know why they've done that Volkswagen, but it's a purely... It's, it's a pointless exercise to tune them, basically, I think, when they're summarized. Yeah, they're 2 litre 8 valve, one fifteen horsepower. And if you look towards the States, what they do with them in the Mark 3s, which is a very similar engine, like they, they charge them, the turbo, like the turbo them, they'll supercharge them. Over here, they're not really like like any other NA engine. You could put a cam in it, maybe a bit of head work, but the gains you're going to get from it's minimal compared to maybe the likes of a 20 valve swap, which yeah. in a Mark IV either buy or would bolt straight into it. Yeah, I think by the time you factor in, like if you were to go and tune a 2 litre 8 valve Mark IV, by the time you buy an intake exhaust, get the head done, put a cam in, super chip, remap, whatever you're going to call it, um, you're in the thousands, whereas you could have bought a salvage Mark IV 18T and you're instantly on the 150 brake, but a tune 2 litre, you're lucky if you get 130, 140 brake after doing all that stuff. Yeah, after a lot of work. Plus, that's you at your max, where if you took, as you say, the, the 20 valve engine and then put that money into it on top of that, you could yeah. be into mid 200s easily. Yeah, well, uh, an 18T, with a 150 18T with a map, like your high 170s, low 180s, just with a map. Yeah, and then after that, the world's your oyster with KO4 upgrades and turbos and things yeah. like that. Yeah, so save your pennies and get an 18T is what we're saying. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> FF Metalworks, Dennis, he says, in my opinion, Reload is the best automotive podcast. Well, that's obvious, no, really. That's it? not a question, but thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dennis. <laughs> I'll take, this, take your lies. Um, Carl Neal, he says, is that Connor? And I think that's in relation to the photo we used for when we posted about uh, asking for questions. And the answer is yes, that is me. That's the time you made it the print at the back of PVW, Connor, isn't it? That one didn't actually. Um, it was not? no. It was the one. The one of me and PVW was lying in my boxers, lying surrounded by probably what lay about forty issues of PVW. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which Lee actually took the photograph. I I was just out of the shower. Lee was coming back from the shower, and I sort of spread the <laughs> magazines out and lay it down. This, this is not making it sound any better, Connor. <laughs> no, well, I was trying to be, you know, sexy scene boy, just for Lee. And Lee, did you say, Lee, did you say act like a ta- or you're a tagger? No, you're taking a photo. <laughs> sound like a TDI. And uh, so, me thinking I was been smart. Lee was smarter, and she lifted her phone and took a photograph. And then I think she sent it to. TJ or somehow TJ got his hands on it. Yeah, because then you and TJ started that just, just some scene girls Instagram account. Yeah, that's right. And it all spiraled from there. But the photo there that we used was this one was uh there was an old bag riders advert in PVW with a girl she was like high heels on and pink knickers like down around her ankles and she was bending over picking up like a coilover strut no an airbag strut and we replicated I had pink boxers and my work boots instead of the high heels down around my ankles bent over picking up the I think it was one of Brian's brand new struts for his TT at the time it was kind of like one of those right we're bored what are we going to do here <laughs> so as, as we all know I don't take myself too serious we should repost that again for anybody listening yep definitely uh, Jackie underscore 195 he says is decorating your car for Christmas a yes or no safely of course personally no I have seen it done just on that topic, there's a fellow actually around the corner. He drives a Defender 90, and he has the whole thing covered in Christmas lights, and he's driving around Combos past week. That's actually sure. quite funny. I'm sure he looks well. As I said, I think on the last episode when we were talking about Christmas trees, normally I would say no, but for 2020, if it yep. makes you happy, have at it. 
anything goes in 2020. Yeah, the rules are really out the window at the minute. One of my favourite um, Christmas decoration things is, you know, every year those guys at the that JCB place or whatever it is on the motorway, and they always have the digger done with Santa in it. That's right. That's yeah. my favourite. I look forward to seeing that every year. Is that McCormick McNaughton? It's either just past Brucefield. I think it is McCormick. Over near Long Valley Stiles. Yeah. Northern Excavators, is it? I, I think know. it's actually Northern, Northern Excavators. Northern Excavators, yeah. Alright, on that topic, just uh, if anybody follows me on Instagram, uh, I put a video up last night of feeling somewhat uh, inadequate in my high-stack <laughs> last night. That's right. Um, there's a fella, he's retired, lives across the road from me, and I think he's watched Clark Griswold in the National Lampoon's Christmas vacation too many times, and we're in our house two years now, and every year he just keeps adding and adding. And when he turns the lights on at six o'clock every night, there's actually a dip in the lights in our house because the, the, the draw. I think the kick, I think the <laughs> turn generation generator four on kill root when he turns his lights on. It's like somebody starting an old welder. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, it's uh, yeah, it's quite quite impressive. That's a man but, that's uh, fiddling the electric. Yeah, I don't know how he got all the socket or the. Well, what do you call it? Four gang so- socket sets from or whatever. Yeah, I look at yeah. houses like that and think that's a fire waiting to happen. Our next one then, Bart B thirteen RRT. He says best Christmas jumpers you've seen so far this year. I haven't seen any. I seen a cracker advertised online there. It's a picture of Donald Trump with a Christmas hat on and says "Make Christmas Great Again." Excellent. That's a good one actually. I haven't seen any so far, but I like mine from last year. The the Slayer one. The Slayer one, yes. It was like supposed to be like a metal thing, but it was Santa on a sleigh, and Slayer was spelled S L E I G H E R. Yeah, that's, that's pretty pretty <laughs> fond of that one. That's where you. <laughs> Ian K. He says coffee or Red Bull. I don't drink coffee. That's not even a question. It's Red Bull anyway. Even if I did. Right. Uh, I don't drink coffee. Red Bull. Red Bull's dangerous stuff. Red Bull's just... delicious. It's the nectar of the gods, I think you'll find. sugar stuff has given me heart palpitations the odd time, and I tend to steer away from it, so I do. So you go for the more healthy option, do you? Um, I hear. That sweet, sweet monster. Two two gallon of monster every day. (laughs) (laughs) Men say it'll be crystallized soon. Um, No, I remember a few times, I think it was, there was one night we are in Belfast, and I was designated driver. And they had an offer on Red Bull. And it was just when Red Bull was basically coming onto the UK market. I had about four or five of them. And couldn't sleep that night. Then I woke up the next morning. Mate Ricky says, right, come on, let's go to the gym. Went to the gym. And I basically had um, heart palpitations on the treadmill. Had to stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's there's definitely something there. The second most uh, noticeable encounter with Red Bull was we're over for a car show in Edinburgh. And we're heading out on Saturday night in Denver, and it'd been a long day because you get up at six o'clock, get the boat across, and all the rest of it. And I was by nine o'clock, I was nagger, so I says, "Right, I'll grab a, a monster here." There was no monster. Grab the Red Bull. I remember walking down the street in Denver, and my heart was going to dinger, and I just went, "Am I going to die of a heart attack in the middle of Edinburgh?" <laughs> <laughs> of all the alcohol you've consumed, and die of Red Bull. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I I don't have a very high caffeine intake. Like I don't drink coffee or really energy drinks i live on pepsi max and i believe there's some sort of caffeine in it but if i do take anything it's white monster i think it was actually you nigel got me onto that 
but it's one of the better ones. You want like you can see the change in me when I take that, and Lee will laugh. It's he does. He gets very intense and like, like walks really fast, <laughs> and he's like, you know, as we've discussed before, Connor can't sit still and you know like chill or do nothing, but it's like even more hyper intense of that, and he's like, right, come on, what are we gonna do? <laughs> I remember standing in a shop one day with Lee. It was a garage. We're queuing up to pay for stuff back before the world was ending. And the I drank a ten of Monster. I don't know if we were coming from recording with you or what or why I drank it. But I was like looking around the shop, like real on edge. And I turned around to Lee. I was like, I feel like I could kill everybody in this place. I don't know what it is with this. It just puts me mad. Probably because I'm just not used to it at all. <laughs> on, the, on the note of Monster Super Value, have an offer. Four for 250 at the moment, folks, if you fancy some. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not going to happen for me. My local Super Value, um, the offer came out, and I went in and filled the basket. must have been near 10 packs of it. And the woman basically says, oh, you must like that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Did you lie and say, it's oh, we're having a party? That's for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> and then to finish up, we have Thomas C1. He has a request. He says, could Lee please do a how-to video for the Christmas tree decorations? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Well, I could do. There we go. We can knock that up this week, sure. Yeah. And post it up on the page, that do. Yeah, sounds yep. good. Excellent. Sounds good. Um, I see somebody done a MIG one of it there. You reposted, Connor, was Yes, it, uh, one of the listeners, Rick, in America. Um, yeah. Rick V-Dub. Oh, he, his looked very cool, by yeah, the way. Yeah, he tagged it together. It was quite cool. I would love to have done that. And funny, Ronan, one of our other listeners, had texted me after we talked about them as well. Um, and he said he was going to do it because he's a welder as well. Like, I could have welded ours, but all we have here is a Meg with like one mil wire in it, which I think would have blown those wee nuts to pieces. Yeah. <laughs> would have been a bit excessive. But anybody who has a TIG, you could probably do it much more effectively than me sitting wrapping bits of wire. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll knock something out for that. That do us, folks, in this week. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks again to everybody who sent in the questions. And if we didn't get to yours this week, we're going to save them up for next time. So don't despair. <laughs> yes, we plan, we plan to have a bit of crack in the next one, I think is the plan, isn't it? Yeah, sort of a reload podcast Christmas party. Anniversary special. <laughs> yeah, so we'll we'll hopefully, finish up the hopefully. questions then. Yeah, it should be good. So as always, you can follow us collectively at Reload Podcast. I'm at Maxwell House 46. I'm at Connor McCann. And I'm at VDubboy. And if you can, take the time to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, wherever it is you, you listen to your podcasts. That would help us out and, and we enjoy reading them for the crack as well. But thanks very much, everybody. See you soon. Cheers. Cheerio. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.